Lord, we bless your name. We exalt you. You are our king. You are our savior. We thank you, Father, for opening your word to our hearts. Open our eyes to the truth that we may grow in you, that we may walk in your word, that we may walk in your wisdom. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Amen. Praise the Lord. You may be seated. We're going to continue on the series that we've been teaching for a number of weeks, Healing Belongs to Us, and we've been using as text scriptures Matthew 8, 16, 17, and Isaiah 53, verse 4. I'm sure I don't have to tell you that the majority of the body of Christ believes that God can heal because they're of the belief that God can do anything. But because of experience and tradition, most think that even though God can heal, he doesn't always, have, doesn't always heal. They believe that God uses sickness and disease to teach us and to bring us into his will. But that's not what the word says. The word says that healing belongs to us because of the finished work of Jesus. Because Jesus took upon himself stripes, accepted the beating in Pilate's court just prior to his crucifixion. And because of that, healing belongs to each and every one of his children, <clears throat> each and every one of us. <clears throat> so in Matthew eight sixteen, it says, When the evening was come, they brought unto him many that were possessed with devils, and he cast out the spirits with his word and healed all that were sick, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying himself took our infirmities and bare our sicknesses. In Isaiah 53, verse 4, it says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. This word griefs and the word sorrows are translated in other places in the Old Testament as sickness and pains. The translators, without judging their motives, simply bailed on the truth of this scripture. The same words that they translated sickness and pains in other places in the Old Testament, they translated here as griefs and sorrows. Now Matthew eight sixteen and 17 provides a commentary, a Holy Ghost commentary for us on what the truth of the Bible reveals to us. In Matthew's day, in the day that he wrote the, the gospel that bears his name, there was no controversy about whether or not healing was in the atonement. The church was healing the sick. The church was doing the works of Jesus. But over the years, many years, thousands of years, the church has completely reversed the, 
the same truth to believe instead that healing belongs to us, but in, instead of that, to believe that God heals when he wants to. Now, the Bible tells us, gives us many and many examples of healing. These examples, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, all the works that God brought upon Israel are examples for us to see his character and his nature. In Exodus chapter 15, verse 26, God said, if thou, wilt, if thou wilt diligently hearken unto the voice of the Lord thy God, and will do that which is right in his sight, and will give ear to his commandments and keep all of his statutes, I will put none of the diseases upon thee, which I have brought upon the Egyptians, for I am the Lord that healeth thee. God names himself. Now, in the, this is really the first place in the Bible that healing is identified as a, character, a characteristic, a part of the character and the nature of God. There's one time in the book of Genesis that the word healed is used, but it's not really talking about healing in the sense that we understand. It was when Abraham was in the land of Abimelech, and he told Abimelech that Sarah was his sister and not his wife. Then the Bible tells us that a vision came to Abimelech in the night. And in that vision, God told Abimelech that he was a dead man for taking Sarah as his wife. Well, Abimelech didn't know what was going on. He had not approached her to sleep with her or to consummate their, their marriage or their association. And so Abimelech went to Abraham and said, what have you done to me? Abraham tries to explain that Sarah is really his half-sister. But Abimelech restores, Abraham, restores Sarah to Abraham. And the Bible says that Abraham prayed for Abimelech. And God healed them. Apparently, during the time that Sarah was the king's wife, even though he had not consummated the marriage or had sex with her, it says that the, the wombs of the women of his land had been shut up. So this was something over a period of time. It wasn't just something that he took her to, to be his wife on Thursday, and by Friday evening, God gave him a vision. This had some kind of longer-term effect, but it says that Abraham prayed for Abimelech, and God healed him. Well, that wasn't really healing from sickness and disease in the sense that we would understand. So really the first time that healing, as we understand it, took place is referred to in Exodus chapter 15. Now the Bible says, tells us that just before Israel was delivered from the bondage of Egypt, God gave them instruction on what to do regarding the Passover. 
Now the Bible tells us as well, just as we referred to Paul's uh, teaching about the Old Testament events were examples to us. We know that Christ was our Passover who was slain for us. In other words, the fulfillment of the Passover was in Jesus and Jesus going to the cross and the punishment that he carried for the sins of mankind. Now, folks, I know that we're going over the same scriptures week after week after week. Somebody came up to me at the end of the service last week and said, do you know that you use the same scriptures today that you used last Sunday? (laughs) Yes, I do know that. When you get a hold of these, we'll go on to some others. You know, the truth is, very few of us, very seldom, does the truth of the word dawn on us the first time we hear it. It's from hearing it again and again and again that it brings blessing and and becomes a part of our life. So I know that we're going through these things, same things over and over again. But I'm doing it, what I believe is by the direction of the Holy Ghost, so that we take hold of these things, and these things take root in our hearts. When God says to Israel in Exodus 15, if you will hearken unto my word and keep my commandments, that makes it conditional. He says, I will heal thee, for I am the God that healeth thee. Now, God is giving himself a name. The first name that he refers or identifies himself with to the people of Israel is Jehovah Ra. Rapha, which means I am the Lord that healeth thee. The name Jehovah, which is what the Hebrew word is used here, according to Bible scholars, one being Dr. Schofield, who was regarded as the greatest of the Baptist scholars, theologians and such, He brings out in his commentary on this verse that there are seven different names that God identifies himself with. And every one of those names begins with Jehovah. Jehovah and then a certain characteristic. Now Jehovah means the self-existent one that reveals himself. Now think about what that means from God's standpoint. God knows that the people of the earth did not know him. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob certainly did. But after being in bondage in Egypt for 430 years, they had forgotten about God, if they had ever known him. But that's generation after generation that has failed to remember or to know who God is. And so God identifies himself, the self-existent one who reveals himself. The first place that God revealed himself was to the people of Israel, bringing them out of Egypt, the bondage of Egypt, by bringing healing to their bodies. 
The Bible says in Psalm 105, verse 37, that God brought them forth, talking about bringing Israel out of bondage, the bondage of Egypt. God brought them forth with silver and gold, and there was not one people among them. Now, the Bible tells us how he brought them forth with silver and gold. They went to, the children of Israel went to the Egyptians, and the King James says they borrowed from them money and jewels and so forth. But it really wasn't borrowing in the sense that we understand it. They really went and demanded payment for being slaves for 430 years. And the Bible tells us that the people of Israel spoiled the Egyptians. The Egyptians were, after having experienced these 10 plagues, brought on to them because of Pharaoh's refusal to let the people of Israel go. They were willing to give them everything they had just to get rid of these people. They understood that the plagues were connected to the slavery or the bondage of the Israelites. And so they gave them more than they asked for. So there was an event that we have record of that fulfilled the promise that the Lord brought them forth with silver and gold. But you've got a, a crowd of people. Israel was at that time estimated between two and seven million people. So if you take the most conservative estimate to two million people that had been slaves, enslaved all their lives, you certainly wouldn't expect everybody to be strong and in good health. But coming out of Egypt, there was not one weak or, weak or sickly or feeble among them. Well, what was the event just as there was an event that turned the people of Israel from being slaves and poor to having silver and gold, what was the event that brought Israel forth without one people among them? Well, the Passover instructions that God gave Moses includes specifically to eat the, of the flesh of the lamb that was offered as strength for their journey, as strength for their journey. So therefore the Passover brought healing to the children of Israel. Now I'm not sure exactly, we don't have any specific information about the people that, of Israel that would have been sick or would have been weak or uh, weak or feeble but folks that means it would have to mean if God tells the truth I'm the God that healeth thee then that would have to mean the people that were crippled were healed or the people that had cancer were healed even going so far to include people that had leprosy now you might say, well, we don't know that there were people that had anything of those, of those types. Well, that's true. We don't know. But whatever they had, they were healed of. 
Another hint, according to this line of reasoning, happened 70, 765 years later when Hezekiah reinstituted the Passover. He became king, and he reinstituted the Passover among, any, among many other things that had been left aside by the people and by the wicked kings that preceded him. And it tells us specifically in 2 Chronicles chapter 30, verse 20, And the Lord hearkened unto Hezekiah and healed the people. So God healed the nation of Israel from great things, serious things, terminal cases, conditions, all the way down to small and minor things. Because the people put God first again and honored his ritual of the Passover. I want to let that sink in a little bit. God healed a nation of whatever sickness and disease were among those people. I really wish the Bible gave us a little bit more information, specific information to let us know that cripples were healed and serious cases of illness and disease, sickness and disease, were healed as well. But God just simply identifies the fact that he healed the people. We serve a good God. We go further in the history of Israel to Leviticus chapter 14 and 15, which gives specific instructions to those that were cleansed of their leprosy. And it tells us specifically that the law of Moses required of any person whose leprosy was cleansed, what we might call going into remission, The law of Moses commanded them to make an atonement as a part of their celebration for the leprosy that was cleansed. Leprosy, which was the great, the greatest of all the diseases of the day. God wanted to make sure that every leper that was cleansed performed or brought to the priest something wherewith an atonement could be made. Healing of leprosy, the great disease of the day, was always associated by God's command with an atonement, a covering over of sin. In Numbers chapter 16, the rebellion of Korah and those that joined himself to them, joined themselves to him, took place where the earth swallowed up, separated, opened up, and swallowed them alive, and then closed up around them. But the people began to murmur against Moses because of the, the number of Korahs 
band that were killed because they tried to take too much upon themselves. They tried to stand in Moses' office. And the Bible says that a plague began among the people. And Moses told Aaron to make an atonement for the people. And so in Numbers chapter 16, I think it's about verse 48, it says that, that Aaron made an atonement for the people and the plague was stayed. It says that he stood between the living and the dead, making an atonement for them. 14,700 people died from the plague. And the atonement saved the rest of them by ending the plague among the people. Now, folks, the word plague is sometimes used as sickness, identified as sickness. But this wasn't a matter of sickness and disease. This is something that God did as protection for Moses and Aaron. We know that God did not create sickness. We know that everything God created, he created in the first six days of creation. And at the end of that period of time, he looked upon everything and it was very good. Many translations say that it was perfect. That shows us a lot about God's will, identifies for us his will concerning sickness and disease. If God wanted us to have sickness and disease, or if sickness and disease was a, a, a teacher of anything from God, then God would have to be the creator of it. But the Bible says that after six days, God made an end of everything that he created. So if he didn't create sickness in one of those first six days, which we know he didn't, then it wasn't made by him. If God used sickness and disease to teach us, then therefore he would have to go to the one who originated or created sickness, which is the devil. And I'm just not sure I can believe that the devil and God are working hand in hand. The Bible tells us in Numbers chapter 21, that the people began to murmur against him, murmur against Moses and Aaron, which seems to us from the historical record to be kind of their normal pattern of operation. They spoke against Moses and Aaron, and it tells us that fiery serpents, meaning venomous serpents, entered in among the people. Now the Bible says in an unrelated context that God led the people of Israel through the wilderness where there were fiery serpents. God, it's not like God created them. But rather, as long as the people of Israel were obeying his commandments, they were under his care. And that care provided for protection 
from these fiery serpents that were in the land. So in the same way that God stayed the plague because of the atonement in Numbers chapter 16, he brought healing to the children of Israel in Numbers chapter 21. But the point I want to make is this. Because of sin, because of the original sin and, and the sinning nature of our bodies, without God's hand of protection, there's a lot of things that would go wrong. A lot of things, sickness and disease, for example, that could and have overtaken us. Remember what he said in Isaiah, I'm sorry, in Exodus chapter 15, verse 26. If thou wilt diligently hearken unto my commandments, then I'll take sickness away from the midst of you, for I am the Lord that healeth thee. Healing was and is conditional. It's conditional based upon the application or the keeping of his word. So the atonement stopped the plague, stopped the death angel literally in Numbers chapter 16, and it removed the fiery serpents from their camp in Numbers chapter 21. Now the way that healing came to them in Numbers chapter 21 was very unusual, very unique because God told Moses to make a brass serpent and put it on a pole. It's still the logo for the American Medical Association used today. It shows a serpent on the pole. God told Moses to make a brass serpent and put it upon a pole and everyone that looked on it would live. Now the significance of that is looking to the promise of God rather than looking at your feet where the snakes are. The Bible says in, number, in uh, Psalm 107 verse 20 that God sent his word and healed us. Well, there are, other, there are other occasions, incidents where people were healed. But let's fast forward a little bit to come to Jesus. The Bible tells us from the four Gospels that a great deal of Jesus' ministry was healing the sick. In fact, it tells us in Mark chapter 9, Matthew chapter 9, verse 35, that Jesus went about their villages preaching the gospel of the kingdom, teaching in their synagogues, and healing every sickness or every disease among the people. Now it's talking about not the people that were healed, it's talking about the illness and the disease that was healed. Every manner of sickness and every manner of disease was healed. Jesus provided an example for us of healing from every sickness and every disease. We know from our studies of the four Gospels that there are 19 individual cases of healing that are mentioned in those Gospels. It seems to us that there might be more than that because many of the Gospel writers talk about, reveal the same 
or use the same healing events to tell us about. There are also places where it talks about the healing of the multitudes and healings of other groups of people. But all in all, Jesus provided for us a complete picture that through him and through the keeping of his word, every manner of sickness and every manner of disease was healed. John says that if everything Jesus said and did was written down, the world itself couldn't contain the books. Well, then that would have to mean that there were a lot more people that were healed than just the individuals that are identified for us in the four Gospels. Now, one of the things that people like us that believe in healing through the finished work of Jesus are criticized by or criticized for. Some people say we make too big an issue of healing. Yeah, God healed and God healed through Jesus. But that was a sideline. Well, folks, we found out in Isaiah 53 that Jesus paid the same penalty and the same price for sin as he paid for sickness and disease. How can you call that a sideline? Furthermore, there was such an emphasis placed on healing in the Old Testament and in Jesus' ministry bringing us to the New Testament that there's a whole lot of emphasis about healing for the physical body for it just to be a side issue or a side note. Well, Jesus went to the cross. Jesus paid the price as the Messiah for sin and sickness and poverty. Isaiah 53, 5, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes, we were healed. Or we are healed. Jesus paid the same price, the shedding of his blood for sin as he paid for sickness and disease. Now Jesus told his disciples before he went to the cross, the works that I do shall you do also, and even greater works than these shall you do because I go unto my Father. One of the thoughts, doctrines, or teachings of much of the body of Christ today, much of the church, the modern day church, is that healing continued to the first generation of the church, to the apostles. And the apostles had some special power because of their place with God, some special power, some special holiness because of the office that God had called them to. But when the last apostle died, all that was done away with. Well, turn with me to Acts chapter 3. 
we'll see the first incidents of healing by the church after Jesus was crucified and resurrected. Acts chapter 3, verse 1, Now Peter and John went up together into the temple at the hour of prayer, being the ninth hour. And a certain man, lame from his mother's womb, was carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, to ask alms of them that entered into the temple. Who, seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, asked an alms. And Peter, fastening his eyes upon him with John, said, Look on us. And he gave heed unto them, expecting to receive something of them. Then Peter said, Silver and gold have I none, but such as I have give I thee. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and lifted him up, and immediately his feet and ankle bones received strength. And he, leaping up, stood and walked and entered with them into the temple, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God. And they knew that it was he which sat for alms at the beautiful gate of the temple. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at that which had happened unto him. And as the lame man which was healed held Peter and John, all the people ran together unto them in the porch, which is called Solomon, greatly wondering. And when Peter saw it, he answered unto the people, You men of Israel, why marvel ye at this? Or why look you so earnestly upon us? As though by our own power or holiness, we had made this man to walk. Now, folks, let me say again what I said earlier in the, in the beginning. There was no controversy among the early church. There was no controversy among the disciples as to whether or not healing was a part of what Jesus paid the price for. That only came through theologians graduating from seminary. But the Holy Ghost knew that there would be controversy about it. And he knew that the church would, or certain parts of the church, maybe large parts of the church, would come up with some idea that the holiness by the original apostles or the power that was given to them that nobody else has, that was done away with, would be the explanation for why healing sometimes occurs. So there would be nobody that would be more included into this idea of the apostles having some special power or some special holiness, more so than Peter, who was the spokesman for the early church for a period of time, and certainly one of the most famous of the apostles of Jesus. And if he and, and or John or any of the other apostles were performing some work of God because of special power they had that nobody else would have or some special holiness or relationship with God that nobody else would have, then he would certainly know it, wouldn't he? But the first thing he says is that it was not by some special power or some special place of holiness that this man had been healed. This can be nothing if not proof positive given by God himself 
that the power to heal is not in the people that minister healing, but rather in the name of Jesus. When Peter saw it, he answered unto the people, you men of Israel, why marvel ye at this, or why look you so earnestly on us, as by our own power or holiness we had made this man to walk? Well, what did it? Back to verse 6. Peter said, Silver and gold have I none, but such as I have give I thee. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise and walk. Now, since it wasn't Peter's holiness or some special power that the apostles had, but that passed away whenever the last apostle died, if it wasn't that, if that's not what healing brought about healing, then what did? Peter said it was the name of Jesus. Now let me ask you this. Of all the times that we've heard that healing passed away with the last apostle or that God did certain things for the early church that we didn't qualify for or doesn't happen with us, then that would have to mean that the name of Jesus has changed. Have you ever heard anybody preach the name of Jesus has changed? Have you ever heard anybody claim that the name of Jesus is different now than it was in the early days of the church? Folks, I've never heard anybody make any kind of claim that the name of Jesus has changed. In fact, the Bible says Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever, which would have to mean that his name is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Well, then why does so much of the church take that position? Well, the answer to that is most often the realization, the reality that the church is trying to explain away why some things don't happen like the Bible says that they should. It's a good thing Peter knew what he had. Such as I have give I thee, he said, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise and walk. Now in Romans chapter 5, verse 12, it tells us the origin of sickness and disease. It says, wherefore, as by one man sin entered the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for all have sinned. It's telling us very specifically that sin was the open door to death, spiritual death, which would include sickness and disease. Therefore, the answer to sin would have to be the answer for sickness and disease. Or we could say it the other way. The answer for sickness and disease would have to be the answer for sin. If sin, one man's sin, talking about Adam in the Garden of Eden, if one man's sin opened the door 
to spiritual death. Now, there are three things that are identified as characteristics of spiritual death. We find those in Deuteronomy chapter 28, which tells us about the curse of the law. Spiritual death is separation from God, and the characteristics of spiritual death include poverty or lack, which the earth was not created for. The earth was created to provide for man in abundance in every possible way. And that was a part of God's creation that after he finished in six days, made it end of everything he created, he looked at and he said it was perfect. So provision, or if we dare use the word prosperity, which freaks a lot of people out, We're built in to God's creation here, meaning the earth. And then the other characteristic of spiritual death that we see came into being was sickness and disease. And again, there's one lone source for all three of these things, and that was Adam's sin. So I'll say it again, the cure or solution for sin, which is the cross of Jesus, had to be, has to be, the same solution for sickness and disease. Sickness and disease is very simply a byproduct of the sin nature of man. Galatians 3.13 says Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. As a matter of fact, turn with me to Galatians chapter 3. Actually, I'm going to start in chapter 1. Paul has established the churches in Galatia. Galatia is a region, not a city. It's what we would call a county or maybe a state. And Paul has established the church there and then continued on with his journeys to other places that God would lead him to preach. But he hears of things that have happened in the region of Galatia. And what had happened was that Jews came down from Jerusalem and tried to mess up the churches that Paul started. They came with the message that Jesus is the Messiah and believing in Jesus is very important. But they taught the people, Gentiles primarily, that they still needed to keep the law of Moses. So Paul writing back to them this seems to be first and foremost on his mind because he spends five verses of salutations and greetings and so forth, but then starts in verse 6 of Galatians chapter 1 with what he considers to be a terrible error and a problem in the church. 
I marvel that you are so soon removed from him that calls you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel. Now I want you to see that phrase, unto another gospel. Paul is very specifically referencing that some are preaching a different doctrine than he started the churches on. Paul recognized, we see through his, the letters that he wrote to the church, he wrote two-thirds of the New Testament. We see the things that he wrote to the church that identify that there were many of the Jews that refused to let go of the law of Moses. Paul wrote to the Hebrews in the book of Hebrews that the Messiah and the finished work of Jesus provided a better covenant for us, established on better promises. Paul recognized that a work of Satan would be to cause people to look at the sacrifice of Jesus on an even par with the law of Moses that was provided. And he spends a great deal of time in the book of Hebrews identifying the excellency or the superiority of believing in the finished work of Jesus and letting go of the law of Moses because Jesus fulfilled it. He codifies the law of Moses, the 630 commands that make up the law of Moses into one law that Jesus told us about, and that was the law of love. The law of the New Testament, the only law of the New Testament is the law of love. Paul's the one that goes into detail to tell us that if we walk in love, we fulfill the law. If we walk in love, we're not going to tell a lie on somebody. If we walk in love, we're not going to try to steal their goods or steal their wives or whatever. So he emphasizes the superiority of Jesus. But the devil inspires certain people, certain Jews, to try to keep the people that have been saved through Paul's ministry to keep that law of Moses. So Paul is going to express his opinion about these things. I marvel that you are so soon removed from him that called you under the grace of Christ unto another gospel, which is not another, but there be some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. But though we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than that which we have preached unto you already, let him be accursed. As we said before, so say I now again, if any man preach another gospel unto you than that which you have received, let him be cursed. For do I now persuade men or God? Or do I seek to please men? For if I please men, I should not be the servant of Christ. But I certify unto you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached of me is not after man. In other words, it's not created by man. For I neither received it of man, neither was I taught it, but by the revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my conversation 
in times past in the Jews' religion, how that above measure or beyond measure I persecuted the church and wasted it, and profited in the Jews' religion above many my equals in my own nation, being more exceedingly zealous of the traditions of my father. He's making the case that I used to be one of those that persecuted the church because I believed that the law of Moses was the supreme and ultimate means of coming to God or serving God. But Paul continues to tell about his own conversion. He continues to tell us about his own position. He talks about in chapter 2 how that he went again to Jerusalem and talked to the apostles there, James and the other apostles that were there, about the ministry that God had given him. And that ministry was preaching the gospel to the Gentiles. So he talks about the revelation that he received. He talks about how that the, the Jews in Israel, in Jerusalem, were not able to add anything to him. In other words, whatever positions they had on the law of Moses were refuted specifically by Paul as he made a report of the ministry that God had given him. And then finally he comes to chapter 3 and in verse 1 after making his case after making his case he says in verse three, or chapter 3 verse 1 O foolish Galatians who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ has been evidently set forth and crucified among you. This only would I learn of you. Receive ye the spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith. Are you so foolish, having begun in the spirit, you are now made perfect by the flesh? He's very simply making the point that their lives were changed when they accepted Jesus as their Lord and Savior. It wasn't the law that brought salvation to anybody. So Paul considers it a foolish endeavor to try to keep the law of Moses to gain something when you've already been saved, been made a new creation by believing in the finished work of Jesus. He goes on further and says in verse 5, He therefore that ministered to you the Spirit and worketh miracles among you, doeth he it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? He's saying keeping the law won't produce anything supernatural. But you've seen miracles take place by simply believing in Christ Jesus. He goes further in verse 13. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree that the blessing of Abraham might come down, come upon the Gentiles through Jesus Christ and that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Paul says it's Jesus and just Jesus. Now he also identifies people that are working miracles among them. We don't know if he includes himself in that category. I believe that he does. But he very simply says, can you get a miracle by keeping the law? 
And the answer to that is certainly not. Turn with me to Acts chapter 14. Acts chapter 14, beginning in verse 1. And it came to pass in Iconium that they went both together into the synagogue of the Jews, and so spake that a great multitude both of the Jews and also of the Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and made their minds evil affected against the brethren. Long time therefore they abode, speaking boldly in the Lord, which he gave testimony unto the word of his grace, and granted signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the multitude of the city was divided, and part held with the Jews and part with the apostles. And when there was an assault made, both of the Gentiles and also of the Jews with their rulers, to use them despitefully and to stone them, they were aware of it and fled into Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lyconia, and unto the region that lieth round about. That region is the region of Galatia. You take a look at any of the ancient maps, and you'll find out that the, re the region of Galatia was made up of Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe, and into some other smaller cities or towns, villages perhaps. So this is Paul's first time to the region of Galatia. The results or the byproduct of his ministry is going to be the churches that he writes the letter that's titled to the Galatians. So when Paul talks about what they have seen, the miracles that have been worked, and the supernatural things that have taken place among the churches in Galatia, the book of Acts gives us a record of what happened the first time that Paul came to that area. So they fled into Lystra and Derby. Their lives were in danger. So they fled the, the town of Iconium, and they came to the cities of Lystra and Derby. And under the region that lieth round about. Verse 7. And there they preached the gospel. And there they preached the gospel. Remember we started off in Galatians chapter 1 verse 6. Where he says I marvel that you have so soon moved to another gospel. Believed another gospel that was presented to you. Now the word gospel means good news. Jesus sent his disciples when he was still on the earth. Jesus sent his disciples to go to cities that he would come to later and preach the gospel of the kingdom. Now the kingdom of God is what's identified in several places where Jesus tells his disciples to go preach. Remember he told them in the, the cities that would receive you, heal the sick that are therein. And say unto them, the gospel of the kingdom is, is coming to you. The gospel of the kingdom of God is coming to you. Jesus wants to make sure that everybody understands that healing is associated with the gospel of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is defined for us in, in my, my Matthew chapter 6. What we know of as the Lord's Prayer, or what's referred to as the Lord's Prayer, Jesus prayed, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
So the kingdom of God is, is defined by Jesus. As the will of God being done on the earth. Just as it was in heaven. Well isn't that restoring things to the original condition? When God created the earth as we said. And after six days. He looked at what he had done. What he had made it into his creating. He looked at it and said that it was very good. Or other translations say it was perfect. Well it was perfect without sickness and disease. It was perfect without anything that could hurt or harm mankind. That's what God considers to be the proper order of things. That's why in heaven there's no sickness and disease. That's why in heaven there's nothing that can hurt or harm mankind. In any way whatsoever. So when Paul preaches the gospel... And remember, he identifies the gospel that he preaches not as by man. He's literally telling them, you're not going to hear anybody else preaching what I'm preaching to you. Now, as, the, as time went on and people were added to the church, there were others that were called and sent forth in ministry that would preach Paul's gospel. But Paul identifies it specifically as saying, it's my gospel. He's not trying to set himself apart from anybody else. He's just saying, I got this by the revelation of the Lord Jesus himself. So don't confuse this with some other doctrine or some other idea or reasonings that men will provide for you. This is what Jesus taught me personally. Now we know that his followers, Timothy and Epaphroditus and others, would take that gospel and start other churches in places that Paul would send him to. But it's still Paul's gospel. So when the people turn away from Paul's gospel, this is what they're turning away from. And there they preach the gospel. And there sat a certain man at Lystra, impotent in his feet, being crippled from his mother's womb who had never walked. The same heard Paul speak, who steadfastly beholding him and perceiving that he had faith to be healed, said with a loud voice, Stand upright on thy feet. And he leaped and walked. Now, folks, Romans chapter 10, verse 17 says, So then faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. Paul's in a place that the gospel has never been preached before. He's in a place where nobody has ever talked about Jesus and the finished work of Jesus. Nobody's ever told him about salvation. And there he preached the gospel. Well, we know, again, as we said, so then faith cometh by hearing, hearing by the word. If this man has faith to be healed, he has to have heard Paul speak or preach on healing. It doesn't say that he had faith to be baptized in water. Why not? Because Paul wasn't preaching on water baptism. But the first place or the first town, well, let me say it this way, the first sermon that he preaches in a new town produces faith for this man to be healed. So without a doubt, Paul has to be preaching on healing for the physical body. It doesn't mean it's all, all that he's preaching on. 
But the preaching of the gospel in Lystra at least includes, has to include God's will concerning sickness and disease. It has to include that Jesus paid the price for sickness and disease so that we can receive by faith healing for our physical body. There's no other possibility. If the man had faith to be healed, he had to hear about healing. If he had faith to be healed, he had to believe that Jesus paid the price for healing. Paul perceived that he had faith to be healed and said to him with a loud voice, Stand upright on thy feet. And he leaped and walked. And when the people saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in the speech of Iconia, The gods are come down to us in the likeness of men. And they called Barnabas, Jupiter, uh, Jupiter, they called Barnabas Jupiter and Paul Mer Mercurius because he was the chief speaker. Then the priest of Jupiter, which was before their city, brought oxen and garlands under the gates and would have done sacrifice with the people, which when the apostles Barnabas and Saul heard of, they rent their clothes and ran in among the people, crying out and saying, Sirs, why do you these things? We also are men of like passions with you and preach unto you that which you should turn from these vanities unto the living God, which made heaven and earth and the sea and all, that, all things that are therein, who in times past suffered all nations to walk in their own ways. Nevertheless, he left not himself without witness in that he did good and gave us rain from heaven and fruitful season, filling our hearts with food and gladness. And with these sayings, the people scarce retained they the people that they had not done sacrifice unto them. Verse 19, And there came thither certain Jews from Antioch and Iconium, who persuaded the people, and having stoned Paul, drew him out of the city, supposing that he had been dead. This is the reward you get for healing a cripple. Now let me take a little side journey here for just a few minutes. You remember when Paul prays? For the thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan to be removed from him. Here's the messenger of Satan. Here's the thorn in the flesh at work. It's persecution. They stoned Paul and left him for dead. I believe he was dead. If they have an opportunity to get rid of this guy once and for all. They're not going to leave him alive. And they're the ones that threw him outside the city after they stoned him. They would have had ample opportunity to check to see if he was still breathing. And if so, they could have finished the job easily right there on the spot. I believe, just my own personal opinion, that Paul was dead. But even that can stop God. You can understand how when Paul talks to the Corinthians and makes the lists of things that the devil has brought against him, of all those lists, things that are listed, there's not one instance, not one mention made of sickness and disease. Sickness and disease was not a problem for Paul. 
It was not something that he was afflicted with. When Paul prays for this thing to be removed, he's praying for the persecution to end. But Jesus says, my grace is sufficient for you. See, if Paul was concerned with, or if the thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan was sickness and disease, he knows by the very gospel that he preaches that Jesus paid the price for sickness and disease. And therefore, it would be impossible for God to withhold healing for his physical body. Remember, Jehovah means the self-reliant or self-existent one who reveals himself. God identified himself as the God that healeth thee. Abraham knew that was part of the old covenant. But he's the one that tells us that we have a better covenant upon better promises, established upon better promises. He doesn't say we have a different covenant. He says we have a better covenant. Well, the only way it could be better for the sick is if it would include the same blessing of, of healing from sickness and disease that the old covenant had. And when Jesus talked about the old covenant and the law of Moses, he said, I didn't come to destroy it. I came to fulfill it. Which means he didn't come to do away with it. He came to fulfill it and produce the promises, the reality of the promises that we could have the promises of the Spirit through faith. So they drew him out of the city and left him there, supposing that he had been dead. Howbeit as the disciples stood round about him, he rose up and came into the city. And the next day he departed with Barnabas to Derbe. And when they had preached the gospel to that city, and had taught many, they returned again to Lystra and Iconium and Antioch, confirming the souls of the disciples and exhorting them to continue in the faith that we through much tribulation enter into the kingdom of God. So when Paul talks to, to the Galatians about allowing themselves to be pulled off by the Jews into keeping the law, and he questions them and says, the people that do miracles among you, do they do them by the, the works of the law or by believing in God? These people know more than anybody else the miracle that God has performed to raise Paul from the dead. Now, whether they went with the story that, well, he must have been at the point of death but not really dead, or comparing that with he was dead and God raised him up. That seems to be a very minor point as far as I'm concerned. Because Paul goes back to the very cities, Iconium in particular. He goes back to Iconium from which the persecuting Jews came, stoned him, left him for dead, and went back and preached into their cities or to, uh, declared in the synagogues among the people that Paul was dead 
And then in a few days, Paul comes walking back into the city. Now remember, the first part of the chapter told us about how Paul fled Iconium when there was an attempt made on his life. Now that attempt has been brought to fruition. But in the power of God, he goes back into the town, not worried about what they're going to do to kill him this time. So this gospel that Paul preaches is a gospel of healing and miracles. Just as a side note, Paul talks about to the Galatians later in the book how that they had compassion on him the first time that they saw him. And, the, and he says they would have been willing to give him their eyes if possible because of the love and the compassion that they showed him. Well, let me ask you something, folks. What does somebody look like after they've been stoned? You've seen these heavyweight prize fights that after hitting each other with gloves for 12 rounds or whatever, their faces are puffed up and swollen up to the point in many cases where their eyes are shut. I wonder if being stoned would have anything like that. I wonder if being stoned would make you look like that. Well, I think we can all agree that it would or could. And so that could explain what Paul was talking about, how that they had compassion on him at the first. At the first identifies that he didn't stay that way. So there they preached the gospel. And the crippled man had faith to be healed. So a different gospel that Paul talks about would be a gospel, at least could be a gospel without healing for the physical body. I know there are some ministers that have published books about a different gospel and say those of us who believe in the operation or examination of faith to take hold of provision because Jehovah is our provider. The self-existent one has identified himself, reveals himself as our provider. And Jehovah Rapha, the self-identifying, the self-existing one who reveals himself as our healer. A gospel that leaves out those two points is not a complete gospel. And I think it would qualify as for what the Bible says is a different gospel. Now turn with me to, to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. First Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23. Paul says, For I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you, 
that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. And after the same manner also he took the cup when he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye as oft as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show the Lord's death till he come. Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily, eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this cause many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, we should not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened of the Lord, that we should not be condemned with the world. Now the four Gospels identify the Lord's Supper. All four of them identify the Lord's Supper. John is the only one that doesn't take us through the mechanics of the bread and the wine. But he tells us more about what Jesus said to them when he was having this last supper with his disciples. So why would Paul need to know? What more would Paul add to the way that the Lord's Supper was ministered or administered? Why would Paul need special revelation for something that the four Gospels, or three of the four Gospels, I guess we should say, makes clearly and known to everybody. Well, remember the Passover was a continuation of God bringing the children of Israel out of the bondage of Egypt. The revelation that Paul brings has to do with the manner and the attitude that we partake of it. And notice he says, that taking the Lord's Supper with the wrong attitude or an unworthy manner. It's important that we recognize that he's not saying that anybody's unworthy to receive it. The blood of Jesus makes us worthy. But Paul apparently has concern for why so many people are weak and sickly and why so many of the people in Corinth have died prematurely, had not lived out their time on the earth. That's the revelation that Paul brings to us. Not that the blood is his body, or that the bread is his body, or the wine is his blood. We get that from the Gospels. But Paul receives revelation. that can change the condition of the people that receive the, the Lord's Supper. Remember in Ephesians chapter, uh, in Exodus chapter 15, he says, I am the Lord that healed thee. 
that healing was the event that brought them forth with silver and gold and there was not one feeble among them. So our attitude, the manner in which we take the Lord's Supper is of utmost importance to us because the same blessing of healing that it can bring to our bodies with the wrong attitude or in the wrong manner can bring a curse upon us. Folks, there's not much that the Bible tells us about healing for the church. Just as in Deuteronomy chapter 28, the first 14 verses of the chapter are talking about the blessings of God. There's no healing that is identified as part of the blessings of God. And that speaks to us in this manner. It is not God's perfect will for us to go from sickness to healing, sickness to healing, sickness to healing. It's God's perfect will that we walk in divine health. And one of the great ways, maybe the primary or utmost way that we can walk in divine health is to rightly discern the Lord's body. To rightly understand that Jesus took stripes upon his back in Pilate's court and that with his stripes we are healed. That was the revelation that came to Paul. Now whether Paul was praying for it and the Lord answered him or the Lord just showed it to him out of the blue, that we don't know. But we do know that he identifies the purpose a cause for why some Christians are weak and sickly and some don't live out their lives. They fail to discern the Lord's body. But folks, just as the Passover, the eating of the Passover, healed the nation, and just as Hezekiah's reinstituting of the Passover healed the nation, we as believers can take hold of healing for our physical bodies no matter the severity of the condition no matter what the disease or the illness might be we've got the life of God on the inside of us and when we come to partake of the Lord's Supper we should understand and discern the Lord's body to such a degree that we are receiving healing for our flesh from the top of our head to the soles of our feet. God is no respecter of persons. If he ever healed Israel through the Lord's Supper or through the Passover, then we know he will heal us in the same manner. If the Lord hearkened unto Hezekiah and healed the people, then why would he not hearken unto you and me? Amen. Well, let's partake of the Lord's Supper. I think the kids are going to be let back in. I assume that's the 
while the crowd is there. Paul's instruction to us is to judge ourselves. In other words, to make sure that we have the right attitude toward the Lord's Supper and that the manner in which we take it is one of gratitude and humility. To receive the finished work of Jesus in all that this entails.
Father, we come before you to receive this Lord's Supper. And we come with hearts of gratitude for all that Jesus has done for us. We recognize that this bread represents his body, which took stripes upon himself. And that with his stripes, we were healed. Thank you, Father, for the privilege that we have to partake of divine health. And we declare that just as Jesus healed every manner of sickness and disease among the people, this which represents his body brings healing to our flesh. Healing from things great and healing from things small. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for healing our bodies. Let's receive the bread. After the same manner also, he took the cup when he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Lord, we thank you for this cup, which represents the redeeming power of God for our lives. Because of this blood of Jesus, we have been made righteous. Our righteousness is not of works or of man, but our righteousness is of you, God. Let's receive the cup. Let's all stand, please. Lord, we thank you that the redemption, your redemption is complete. We thank you that we walk in divine health, that we manifest the fruits of righteousness in our lives. In Jesus' precious name, amen.